This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. I'd like to thank one of our sponsors, RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com. In today's dynamic retail landscape, tracking openings and closings before they take place has never been more important. Having this intelligence is an undeniable competitive advantage. RetailOpeningsAndClosings.com, also known as ROCK, tracks future openings and future closings. Comprehensive, accurate, and reliable, the ROCK is your crystal ball and the key to making well-informed decisions with confidence in today's evolving retail climate. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today we have James Cook. James is the director of America's Retail Research for JLL and the host of the Where We Buy podcast. Welcome to the show, James. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Chris. It's good to virtually see you again. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) So, James, we're living in uh, interesting times and you have an interesting role because uh, you do research on retail and you get the opportunity to highlight a lot of that research in your podcast. And so first off on your podcast, have you been going out and doing any of podcasting? Cause a lot of your podcasting, you, you go to places to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's, we always said, yeah, you know, we, we tried to do half of the episodes us out, you know, Hey, this week I'm in this city and we're talking to this person and we're in, you know, at this mall and all that's had to go away. So it's all telephone interviews and um, I'm just really itching to get back out in the world. I, um, this past week, I've started working at a co-working space that I was working at before COVID hit. And the cool thing is it is on the second floor of a lifestyle center. Uh, So I get to work and look over retail. So I'm doing a little bit of retail research um, and actually it's made me feel kind of optimistic, I'll, definitely more optimistic than I was earlier because I'm seeing people out and about shopping. Um, my vantage point, I, I see an, an American Eagle right out my window and I have oftentimes this week seen lines of people lining up. Now, of course they're at limited capacity and that's part of it, but you know, I've seen the uh, lines at Bath and Body Works. Uh, you know, there's people out there that just want to get out and shop. And, um, you know, I, I'm definitely nervous about c- retail in cities because cities are going to be slower to recover because of density and, and, and just, you know, you know, fears of interacting with people before we have, you know, some kind of vaccine for COVID. But um, I think the suburbs... Uh, are coming back, you know, a lot quicker than I thought they would. So in where you are, are people wearing masks in stores? Yeah. So that's a whole nother story, right? Um, It's so I, I'm in the Midwest, I'm in Indiana, um, suburban Indianapolis. And um, depending on where you go, it's 50, 50, some places it's 60, 40 uh, in favor of not wearing 
Um, I really think the every mile you get closer to a city, the more you're likely to see people wearing masks. It's really, I, I kind of live out in the country. And if I go to my local, you know, my local um, grocery store that's far away from the city, um, I don't know. I'm in the minority wearing my mask, definitely. Um, it's just, I think it's tough for people to because a virus is invisible, it's tough for them to treat it as a real thing, you know? Um, but what I have seen is that a lot of retailers, especially national retailers have had pretty, um, a lot of them have put rules in place, you know, where, you know, you have to wear a mask to go in the store. For example, um, uh, Barnes and Noble is a, is an example because that's a place where people are really browsing a lot. And, uh, the Barnes and Noble, uh, you know, where I work, you know, in that shopping center, they've got a, um, somebody stationed out front, you know, to make sure everybody's aware you've got to wear a mask before you go in. Um, and you know, it's pretty, it's pretty serious, but yeah, I don't know. What's it like you're in uh, New Jersey. What's the mask situation like there? You're not allowed in a store unless you have a mask. So it's very simple. Uh, so I haven't been in a store since early March without a mask. Maybe February for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true for me too. But I think a lot of people, yeah, it's so funny because New Jersey was one of the strictest, uh, yeah. one of the longest lockdowns. And, you know, some of these, you know, especially, you know, uh, you know, a rural or a, a suburban area, you know, people just don't just take it differently, you know? Yeah, I totally, I get it. It's, it, it'll, It'll be interesting to see consumer behavior as we, you know, as we get to 2021. I think that, you know, you mentioned the the cities versus the suburban and rural areas. And, you know, I feel pretty good, at least at the moment, owning suburban shopping centers because it feels like there's going to be a, de a de-urbanization starting to happen, just like they're, you know, we're going back to a, a little bit of de-urbanization. So do you, are you thinking that happens? Yeah, it's an acceleration of a trend that was already starting to happen, um, which is, you know, younger people are creating families and finding it unaffordable to rent the amount of space that they need to raise a family in the city. So we saw more and more people moving to the suburbs and, and moving to, um, you know, less expensive cities. And this is like just accelerated that um, because of health health issues. But I think in the long term, actually kind of good in a lot of ways, especially for places like New York, where rents were so exorbitant that, I mean, you know, you had to be rich in order to afford a two-bedroom apartment. Um, and, I, and I think that, that what will happen is we're going to have an opportunity where, um, you know, retail rents are going to go down a bit. And it's going to create a new opportunity for that next wave of expanding retail to open up in locations in, say, New York or San Francisco where they couldn't afford before. Do you, do you think rents in suburban markets go down? That's a great question. Uh, I think it depends. Um, if we're talking about grocery anchored centers, um, probably not. 
I mean, well, you know, let me take that back. I think inline, there's a certain number of inline tenants that are mom and pops that are small businesses that might not be able to make it through this recession. I'd be curious to see in, in your centers, because you guys have a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, we do. Or it's the, is it the small businesses that are struggling right now? So it's hard, it's hard to tell right now because I would say that when a lot of tenants got PPP and so that's carrying them through, I, I don't think you're going to really know until they open up fully, they're off of PPP, they get through a back to school, a Christmas. And I think, you know, early 2021 is going to be our really big tell of the effects of this. I think we were, you know, I, I haven't seen knock on wood and I'm literally knocking on wood, you know, the, the massive um, closures of small business that you were hearing was going to happen. And I think that's, you know, government stimulus, vendor help, whoever that might be, uh, uh, you know, a landlord, a, a supplier and to help those get through, you know, the really the, what we've seen on the, you know, pending closures has been the nationals that are filing. That's the, you know, I have two JC pennies. Uh, I have, um, you know, some of these tenants, you know, I had some pure ones, things like that. Uh, as far as the rents go, I, I think it's an interesting one because in some of the major cities, the landlords had the leverage, the deals were, you know, high rent, low spend. For the suburban nationals, the, the expansion was fueled by landlords putting a lot of CapEx, TI dollars, landlord work into deals. So if the rents go down, either the retailer is going to have to pay that or the landlord is going to have to figure out how to get the cost down. So I, I think there may be a balance. I think one of the things that will have to happen is construction costs come down. Otherwise, I think there's a challenge. And I don't think that we're going to see in suburban world the, the rent decrease that some might expect, like there probably will be at the same percentage in the urban environments. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. They don't, they don't, there's debt on these properties. So they don't have the flexibility to negotiate with tenants, even if they want to. Yeah. That's tough. I'm, I mean, I think I'm thinking a lot right now, like the big question that we're trying to figure out is the impact of department store closures. Like two questions, what do you do with a vacant department store? And then the other question is, how much of an impact is this going to have on malls in general? Like I'm still, I'm seeing such a wide variety of predictions on how many malls are going to close, how many department stores are going to close. We're working on our own forecast, but it's really tough. You almost have to look at it mall by mall to figure out what the impact is going to be. Now you said you've got JCPenney as, as tenants. Their old catalog stores open air, they, they, they look like they could just be a TJ Maxx, except it says, you know, or a different tenant, you know, it could, they look like they could be a, you know, any box tenant junior anchor, but it says JCPenney over the, the, the sign. So you've got, you've got some opportunity there then. Yeah. Like you could probably lease that out to yep. somebody else. So yeah. that's good. Yeah. It's really the, it's really the malls. Like if you're, if you're, 
if you lose one or two department stores and your mall was a little sleepy to begin with, um, it's just a tough time. We're just trying to figure out some ideas for alternatives, entertainment, medical, but you know, there's no magic bullet to figure that out. Yeah. There's definitely no magic bullet. I, I think that, you know, at least for me on the, on the mall side, there's obviously going to be major transition in malls. You know, some of the tenants in malls will start to be outside tenants and start to go to power centers and grocery anchor centers that they weren't definitely. tenants of before that, you know, I think that's going to happen. But I think that, you know, as it relates to the effect it has on the mall, you know, what was the positive that Sears was doing for the mall pre-COVID? I ask that seriously. You know what I mean? So I, I what was that? You know, just a filling a hole, maybe perception. I don't know. You have economic challenges for landlord and maybe enhancing that property. But I, I'm, I'm wondering, like, obviously in an A mall where the department store is $50 million, you know, there, there's a challenge with that. But that doesn't feel like that was majority of the malls in the U.S. pre-COVID. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, it's a couple of things. I mean, let's say you were, you know, one of your anchors was a Sears that really wasn't doing that much. It still was an open store and it had this feeling of vibrancy, you know, and sure. suddenly that end of the mall is closed and and it mentally people are like, oh, that mall is dying now. That's you know, that's a big part of it. But I mean, yeah, depart, department stores, you know, the many of them, uh, you know, like the JCPenney's, for example, a lot of people still shop there. A lot of those JCPenney's that are going to be closed were still traffic drivers to these malls. So I would um, ask, did those people go into JCPenney and leave or did they go into JCPenney and go into the mall? Uh, I think a lot of them would do, there was cross shopping, I think okay. definitely. But I think that the beneficiary to your point of closing department stores and closing apparel in malls is going to be open air centers. Like I, th I think people are just going to say, well, you know, I used to go to JCPenney. Now I'm going to go to Kohl's, you know, to get the same kinds of things. And, you know, now I'm out, you know, and I'm going to cross shop at those other stores that are in that center. And so let's pivot a minute. What we've gone through this crazy time. You, you get to look at different stats, figures. What's been the most interesting stat you've seen so far through COVID? I mean, <laughs> the, well, interesting, the skyrocketing unemployment is the scariest chart I've ever seen. I'm sure you've seen that. Sure. In my, in my real estate world, uh, we track absorption, which for listeners of the show that don't know what that is, it's just the change in occupied square feet of retail space. Yep. And it basically means the number, if it's positive, it's healthy because that means that we've been leasing more space than has been being vacated. And uh, for 11 years, that number has been positive every quarter until Q1 when it was negative negative six million square feet. And that was only in Q1, only one month of that was impacted by COVID. So I'm just waiting to see what that Q2 number is going to look like. And so that's interesting research. 
what what properties aren't included in that? Do you got you? It's impossible to cover every asset in the country, right? It is. So that's major markets. Um, but within major markets, it's most retail space. I mean, I'm trying to remember if, if we're covering for that number, it might be over 10,000 square feet in size. So it's not going to be that real tiny stuff, but that includes all retail um, in say all the top. Is it, it's not just public company. Retail. No, no, it's everything. And it's a, it's about that number is physical vacancy. So it doesn't account for, you know, if we know somebody's going out, but if they're still physically in the store, then we'll count it as occupied. Got it. Um, so that, that, that's definitely interesting. Do you think, you know, I was talking to my wife and, my, and, and she's a non-industry person and, you know, I'm talking about, you know, potential vacancy and she kind of shrugged it off and she's like, ah, I think what will happen is what happens in every business cycle. Someone will see an opportunity. It's America and they will fill a void. And so it's so simple, but I thought so profound, which is we don't talk about that. All this market share that might get left on the table. Is there going to be new concepts that come on that we don't know today that try to take up some of that market share or they only go online? Oh, I, th- I think your wife is totally on target. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to have a certain amount of space that is obsolete and is going to go away. And, you know, you think about, you know, your, your really old dead and dying malls, that right, kind of thing. Yeah. Right. But everything else, there's a, there's a highest and best use for all real estate, you know, and it changes over time. And, you know, our prediction for online is that yes, right now we're seeing the highest online retail sales that we've ever seen in history because people have been stuck at home and have to shop online. Um, But as people are now being allowed to, restrictions are loosening, people are allowed to come back out. We're seeing those numbers start to go down. Um, We haven't, I don't have any good solid numbers yet um, for the U.S., but in other countries, we've seen the online numbers start to go back down to what they were pre-COVID or pretty close to it. Um, our ultimate prediction is that when all is said and done, COVID will have pushed online penetration forward by like maybe three years. So it's not like it's not like retail online retail is going to be 50% of all retail sales or anything like that. It's going to be more like 20%, which is, you know, more than it would have been. But, um, you know, it's not like all sales are, are happening online now. Um, that's interesting. So three years, it pushed it three years. Do you, I, I ask everyone this, do you have a, a view? And I don't know if you look at this and your research is these online sales are not profitable to a lot of retailers. So if it continues to grow, it's going to can, you know, start to really hurt some of these retailers. You just look at like a Wayfair who has really, you know, very little uh, physical retail presence and they lose money. That's unbelievable to me every quarter. Now it's invested capital to grow market share, but at some point, you know, it, it doesn't make any money. So I, you know, I wonder, 
and and maybe it will because they're just capturing so much market share. But that they're not everyone. They're 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 on the Amazon path to which took forever to get profitable. And some argue whether it still is, and maybe that'll be Wayfair. But take some of these smaller guys who have online. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, you know. If they don't make money, what are they doing? And I guess that brings the point that 50% of like online shopping is done through Amazon. So really when you're talking about online, you're, you're almost really talking about Amazon versus brick and mortar. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so that's true. And, and it's not necessarily through them. It's often through third, third party sellers, you know, they're using it as a platform. Um, I think that a recession will shake out some of that. Because all of these online retailers that were losing money in order to gain market share um, were being were backed by venture capital that would float them through that, that didn't care about profits, that only cared about growth. As that money dries up, we're left with online retailers who have to make a profit in order to stay in business. And I think that'll change. Although, to your point, there's still some major online retailers out there. Um, who get a pass. What's that? Who get a pass. Yeah, yeah. Well, who, yeah, who can, who can do it? Um, yeah, who, who get a pass. That's exactly right. Who get a pass. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, because I only read headline news about Chuck E. Cheese or Tuesday morning. I don't read headline news about this unprofitable online D to C brand who doesn't have any stores. Are there any, we all talk about these. I don't read headline news about that. They're going to have to file because they have no money and no, the VC firms are fed up. I don't read anything about that. I mean, that happened. That happens every day. I know, (laughs) you know, it's like, uh, I'm, you know, like blah, 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 box subscription service for rock of the month or hat of the week, or just all this crazy stuff that is a flash in the pan. You know, they ramp up, they get some media coverage and then they don't make money and disappear. Yeah. It happens. It happens all the time. It's because physical retail has actual physical stores that you can see in your neighborhood that when there's a story about them closing, it's a big deal and people really care about it. Interesting perspective. I would love for you as you're, you're now a media man, James, whether you want to be or not, you are to, 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 to do some research on that fly by night box subscription service that was actually fly by night. Cause I think that would do our industry some good. So I'm going to, I'm going to push you to do some <laughs> homework on that and have, have you guys put out a deck on it. Um, what, what are you most optimistic about coming out of this pandemic? Short term, I feel good about, uh, daily needs retail. Um, I feel great about, um, uh, you know, fast, casual, casual dining, any, any, any dining that's been able to pivot to off premise dining, you know, I, I feel, I feel great about, um, I'm, really worried about restaurants, especially like small business restaurants, locally owned restaurants that relied on casual dining, that relied on sit down dining, that relied on having a full house every Friday and Saturday night in order to make their rent. 
who are suddenly restricted to 25, 50% capacity. I'm really nervous about that. Um, but overall, you know, as I said before, I, I've, I see just people going out and, and, you know, starting to return to, to shopping. You know, I see, you know, groups of teenagers and they're, you know, often in mass, but wearing, you know, carrying H&M bags and, you know, walking with their Starbucks coffee in hand and, and, you know, the national retailers that are able to weather this storm, I think are going to come back, you know, come back strong. The, yeah, that is a, the, the ones who can weather this and they can figure out how to get through this. <clears throat> so you're in the, the research world. You're not in the brokerage world. You're not in the landlord world. You're not in the retailer world but you've been sitting back and watching what's been going on with the, the tenuous relationship between tenants and landlords in some perspectives. Um, you've been reading headline news. I'm sure you saw you're in Indiana. One of the landlords there sued a big national tenant recently. Um, and you're okay. seeing all this. <laughs> I'm like, are you, are you, are we not allowed to say names? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm sure you are. It was made headline news. Uh, and so, what do you think about that relationship and what's gone on through this? I'm so JLL works for everybody. Like we work for landlords. We work for tenants. Um, we manage shopping centers. Um, we represent tenants on leases. So I've seen every side of it and have been pulled into conversations on both sides. And I, I don't see any villains. I see, people between a rock and a hard place um, just trying to do the best they can. I mean, just right before we got uh, into our conversation here, I was exchanging emails with a try, trying to be vague about this. It's a tenant who is wants to be a going concern and continue and is asking for rent relief and is having pushback from the landlord. And I'm, and I bet you that landlord probably is thinking, Hey, I got to pay debt on this property, you know, and it's, it's just a bad conversation. It's, it's bad times. I'm going to give you one pre COVID. There were locations in America where a tenant signed up for, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 year lease. And they, decided it wasn't working. They closed down. They were still on the hook on the lease. And they paid the rent without question. They were not open. They were not making revenue, but they paid the rent. Dark store, we call it, right? Leased unoccupied in a, in, in a re, you know, like quarterly supplement or something. But that kind of went out the window through this uh, that kind of perception that I'm on the hook, I owe it, but I'm not open. I still owe it because I'm on the hook. What do you think of that distinction? So you make a good point. Um, maybe I overstepped my bounds when I said there's no, there's no, I said there's no villains. I don't think people <laughs> are villains. I think people are villains for acting in their own self-interest. Yeah. But you're right. I have heard stories of tenants who can afford to pay their rent taking advantage of the fact that nobody else is paying, you know, so I'm going to demand rent relief, you know, from every landlord that I can. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of cases, 
the uh, tenants that are demanding this relief are in better financial position than the landlord. Yeah. But it, but it goes both ways. I'm sure there's landlords who are yeah. being hard uh, to tenants where, the, where they don't necessarily have to be. As one of the things that astonished was astonishing to me, and I would love to hear your take because you're in the research world. It, it seems like anecdotally to me at scale, there was better rent collections in the office world than in retail. We did pretty good on rent collections, but those people couldn't go to their offices and they couldn't use the real estate, no different than a retail tenant, yet there wasn't the same reaction. Why do you think that happened? Yeah, that's great. I wish I knew we were going to talk about this because I would be smart and have numbers oh, to no support worries. you because no uh, worries. We, uh, I no have worries. some statistics from office buildings and the tenants, these are office buildings that we manage um, and uh, vast majority of tenants are paying the rent. And yeah, the tenants who aren't paying, aren't paying the rent are the ground floor retail. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's because with retail, it's like the money comes in and it goes back out in the form of rent. And it's like, um, it's like if your doors aren't open, you're not making any money. Whereas, you know, businesses like mine, like JLL, we're all just working from home while our office are closed. Very few of us are not able to at least perform our basic functions. So we're able to continue as a going concern, even though our doors are closed. Those doors in retail, that's your money faucet and you're shutting your money faucet off. So it's, it's just tough to pay rent. Sure. Good perspective. What is a, a bold James prediction like that's just, you know, it, it's a Hail Mary prediction. It's probably not going to happen, but something that there's a chance, there's a sliver. Okay. Uh, my, my favorite thing about my job is experiential retail. And I love traveling around and seeing new shopping centers and how they create new retail experiences right now is the worst time in American history for experiential retail. It's like, it's, uh, that's experiential retail is like illegal. Now we're shutting it down. Um, my prediction is it is going to come back with a vengeance. Like the minute that, um, a majority of Americans are, are safe because of a vaccine or whatever, where they feel safe going out and shopping. I just, there's just going to be just, I, I, I see droves of people returning to, you know, with their family and friends to entertainment retail, to restaurants, to um, theaters. Gosh, I hope theaters can hold on until then. Um, and, and, and all of that stuff, you know, um, American dream at the Meadowlands, uh, you know, that entertainment uh, um, mall that just delivered at, at just such a bad, such bad timing. If those guys can, can hold on, I think, I think that's the kind of thing that people are going to want to return to. I love it. Love it. I hope you're right. So we'll see, but you guys, uh, you know, you guys are, are focused on the daily needs people. Um, you're not nearly as experiential and that is always a safe bet. Always a safe bet. The, well, 
I hope so. I hope, I hope, I, I hope all retail does right. well. I, I hope my wife is, you know, is right. And there's some new concepts that get birthed out of this and no one's really talking about that. And I, I hope, I think there is, I don't know what it is, uh, but I, I, you would think that makes sense. That said, I think the thing that makes me question that a little bit is you take a group like Toys R Us that had $11.5 billion in sales. So majority of that was brick and mortar. So people were coming in the store, spending $11.5 billion. They were a Fortune 300 company when they filed. And it all went to existing. It all went $11.5 billion got chopped up between Walmart, Target, Amazon, and some online and some other guys, five below maybe. No one came in and took some of that, which was mind-boggling to me. So I hope there's some guys who, you know, try to take some of whatever ends up going away through this, but we'll see. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, we, you know, we live in a post-Toys R Us world now, and we ne- I, I just never thought that would happen. I thought, okay, maybe they file for back bankruptcy, but they're not going to liquidate, right? I mean, so many people shop there, but it was, it's all about debt, you know, yeah. it's just poor poor choices. <laughs> it was not because there wasn't a demand. There's still a demand for that retail. Um, or the, what, this minute there might not be, but in the near future, when people go out and about again, I think there is. I have a three-year-old and an 18-month-old. There's demand for toys. I can right. tell you that right now. <laughs> yeah. Their toys are in demand. And, you know, as, so I'm not a parent, so you can answer this. Um, is it the same to shop for toys online for your kids? Or do you think it's better to go into the store and shop for the toys? It's a great question. One of the things that you get in a well-merchandised store like a Toys R Us is the discovery process, which is very challenging to do online, which is you can touch and feel and see it and, you know, and I'm always a person like, I, let's not live serendipitous. You know, I think there's a need for brick and mortar, not a want. It's needed. And, you know, there's an economic reason to have it because it's cheaper to do business and it can um, get the products of the consumer for less. And I don't live in the world where, like, you have to touch it and feel it. People are buying cars online. So I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't want to be confused that, you know, I have to touch a $30 product in order to feel good about buying it. But when I mean touch and feel it, just to understand how it works, to see all the different options to, you know, to maybe ask questions to an associate. So all that things, I think, I think make it better to do brick and mortar um, as a consumer for toys. Yeah, I feel, and that's how I feel about gift shopping in general, because I'll try to gift, I'll try to holiday shop online and it, it's tough. It's really, it's tough to find stuff for people where I'll go to the mall, you know, around the holidays, I'll go to the mall and walk around and usually end up finding something for everybody. The discovery process for whatever reason, it's so much easier in the physical world. Yeah, totally. It really is. It, you know, you need well merchandised stores. You need good merchants. Oh, that's for it true. To work. You need good merchants for it to work. But if you have a good merchant, it's definitely better. Well, listen, this has been great conversation. 
what haven't we talked about that we should talk about? Uh, One last thing. Let's see. I mean, we talked about my favorite topic, which is experiential retail. We talked about daily needs retail. Um, what else is what else is going on? I mean, we talked about restaurants, which is a big one. I mean, what happens to casual dining? I think there's going to be just so much. So many restaurants are going to close that can't make it through this, and those those chefs. Uh, they're going to turn around and open new restaurants probably, you know, a year down the road. So it's not, it's not the end of the road for, for foodies, but there might be a kind of pause in, in good new restaurants for a while. Is there an up and comer that you're watching? Who's like made good strides through this, a tenant of any, you know, a retailer or a restaurant? Oh, um, there's a Michelin star um, restaurant in Chicago called, I think it's called Alina. Alinea. Alinea, right. You've heard the story. Um, yeah, about how they moved to delivery. Yeah. it's. I listened to the podcast. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, just blown away by, you know, a place that was doing, you know, 500 bucks a head meals and pivoted to it's carry out. To $35 yeah. meals, yeah. And, and was doing better nights than they'd done before. It's just yeah. brilliant. I love seeing a good pivot. <laughs> yeah, me too. It is a good one. It's a good example. You know, I was, I was, I was reading and I made a post about this, um, that KPMG put out something that the three categories for the, that they thought would there'd be the most M&A with for consumer and retail were functional beverage, personal care, and plant-based. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. I use the M and a cause I think that's interesting. You're going to, I think you're going to see a lot of M and a you're going to see companies on sale. And so I think you're going to, that's a way to grow, right? You, you already heard rumors about Amazon buying AMC or whomever you're going to see M and a, you just, I don't know if you saw, not as big of a press release as I would have thought, but Food Lion bought 62 leases stores from Southeast Grocers, Bylow's and Harvey's. So Food Lion's owned by Ajo Delhi's. And I think you're going to start to see the old military adage that one is none and two is one. You'll start to see some uh, M&A deals start to happen. So we'll see um, what synergies can be made by a retailer buying a retailer, but I think that's going to happen. Yeah. And a recession's the time to do it. That's yeah. when the prices are affordable. <laughs> so, so you, that, let, let's, uh, that'll be the last thing you, you mentioned recession a couple times. So are we in a recession right now? I think that's being debated. Are we in one? Yeah, it was called man officially this week. Yeah, the, uh, I saw it was called, uh, and I've been saying the R word for quite a while now because we knew it was here. Um, yeah, it's funny. So we have, JLL has a chief economist, um, Ryan Severino, who's our, our economic modeler. And uh, we've been working with him to try to understand how this recession is, gonna, is comparing with past recessions. It is the sharpest and deepest fall that we've ever seen. Um, as far as unemployment, as far as GDP. But I think the good news is that it was caused by outside forces. It wasn't some internal financial disaster that caused it. 
So as we get, as restrictions loosen, as long as COVID doesn't spike again, and we're allowed to get back out there and get back to work, um, hopefully that means it's a short, it's a shorter recession. I mean, I think the Fed released some numbers, some unemployment forecasts um, the other day that showed um, what, like 10% unemployment after maybe a year. I might be getting that a little bit wrong, which um, is rough, no doubt about it. Um, but there is a kind of a sense that um, we, we're going to see a, a kind of slow and steady kind of return to to a normal. Yeah. I, I asked the question that way because so obviously we, we, it was made official that we're in a recession by the government standards. I've been talking to a lot of people who have debated me that we're in a recession because it was, I'm using air quotes for those listening, artificial and it was government forced. It's not a real recession. Yes, it's bad, but we're going to bounce back. And that's why I asked the question that way. So when do you think retail starts to recover? It's already happening. Um, I love that. Answer. The, yeah. The retailers like that have been allowed and that have been able to reopen usually in suburban locations. Not so like the recovery is not, not really happening yet in cities, but in the suburbs, um, I don't know if you saw American Eagle, stores that have been allowed to reopen there at 95% of pre-COVID sales. That's awesome. It's unbelievable. Like, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, people are going back where they're, where they can, where they're allowed. Um, it's just a matter of capacity. When those capacity numbers are allowed to be at a hundred percent, you know, I think the recovery is here. We're going to end on that. That's great. The recovery is here, everybody. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's the headline quote. That is uh, James the headline. Cook says the recovery's here. <laughs> um, well, listen, we're going to go to the last part of the podcast. I'm going to ask you all three questions. Retail wisdom. You ready? Sure. I didn't. Re- I didn't remember about this, so I'm no like, worries. You're going to ask me. <laughs> no worries. So one is a simple one. Best piece of commercial real estate advice. Someone who's always looking at the data. Uh, yeah. The best piece of advice is look at the data. Don't follow your emotions. People spend too much money or too little. (laughs) People make mistakes because they follow their emotions when making business decisions. Look at the data. Second question. Extinct retailer you wish would come back from the dead. Oh my gosh. Um, I used to go to sharper image all the time as a kid. Also went to um, Walden Books all the time. Those Walden are my two. Books. First one to ever say Walden Books. <laughs> um, hey, here's one. Let me ask you about. You're a, a New Jersey guy. Do you remember Hammaker and Schlemmer? They were like a gadget kind of flagship in in Manhattan, like. 20 or 30 years ago, I used like, like I'm, I'm, and I used to get their catalogs in the mail. Are they still around? So I do remember them. It looks like they have a website, but no physical stores. Cause I remembered their physical store being like, so cool. I don't know. 
I don't know. It's a great question. Don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. Walden books and, uh, Walden books and, 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 uh, sharper image are my two. Do you still read a lot? Reading anything? I do. Good? What are you reading these uh, days? I did. Uh, last, uh, the book I just finished is called the victory lab. And so the pitch for this book is, you know, Moneyball. Love Moneyball. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is Moneyball for politics. So using the same statistical big data stuff, but applying it to politics. Um, it's a few years old. So the most recent stuff is like a couple of presidential elections back, but it's the whole history of elections is seen through the eyes of data. So very fun read. Interesting. If you like Moneyball top type books there and you're a data guy and you're in real estate, there is a book, it's a couple of years old now, called Zillow Talks. So huh. basically, you, you, you got to check it out. So basically, Zillow had all this data because they were like the first online, you know, platform for this. And they kind of debunked a bunch of myths about residential real estate. And it's just fascinating, you being a data guy, how they use data to get there. Zillow Talks, great book. That's cool. I hadn't heard of that. I'm gonna have to check it out. Yeah. Last question, James. So it's summer. I was looking for some summer beach shorts. I was looking at some Tommy Bahamas. Uh, but now I was looking, I, I just found this Halsey um, uh, shorts. And I'm on Halsey's website and they have the Helmsman sport short. What does the Halsey Helmsman Helmsman sport short retail for on their website? I'm going to guess $45. Well, I haven't bought it and this is why I haven't bought it. It's $110, but thank you for playing. (laughs) Do you think it's overpriced? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if it's overpriced. Nothing's overpriced. It's, it's what someone's willing to pay for it. <laughs> it's what the market will bear. You got it. I have a great pair of um, Fair Harbor. I had them on the podcast. Oh, sure. Yeah, they do. Um, they make um, swim trunks and shorts with recycled plastic bottles. And uh, they were nice enough to give me a pair, a pair of shorts. Love them. Wear them all summer. They're great. Uh, they're worth it. <laughs> awesome. Well, Listen, uh, James, it's been awesome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the real-time data. And thank you for the headline. The recovery is here. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it was so great to catch up, Chris. You too. I'm crossing my fingers. I'll get to see you in person within within the year. Within the year. Within 12 months. Within 12 months, man. All right, man. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives. So it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.